This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hello and welcome back. I'm Harbir Singh, co-director of the Mac Institute and a professor of management. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. If you have any questions during the show, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. I'm pleased to welcome to the show my next guest, John Rose. John is the President and Chief Technology Officer of Dell EMC. He's one of Dell Technologies' leading voices on emerging technologies, including all things related to artificial intelligence. John is also a published author and holds more than 20 pending or granted patents. He currently serves as the chairman of the board of Cloud Foundry Foundation, a leading open source platform for cloud native applications, and was named one of the world's top 50 edge computing influencers by Data Economy magazine. John, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Great, glad to be here. So um, tell us about uh, AI and its current role in driving innovation at uh, at Dell. Let's start with that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clearly, um, the use of machine intelligence to to essentially divide up the thinking tasks of the world is is something that's uh, been been quite a popular topic lately, and mm-hmm. and it does represent a pretty significant inflection, but. Um, Inside of Dell, I mean, as, as many people may, may or may not know, we're the largest uh, infrastructure, information technology infrastructure company in the world, $92 billion, 150,000 mm-hmm. people. And inter- information infrastructure is the what's called the basis and the, the, the foundation for most of the digital economy. But mm-hmm. the challenge is, uh, as the digital economy grows, that infrastructure uh, becomes more and more complex. And right. so one of the biggest things that's happening with AI in our world is actually using it as a way to make that infrastructure more autonomous, uh, more uh, abstracted, and more automated so that the relatively limited set of human capacity that we have that actually understands and can operationalize and utilize and and run infrastructure can scale as we add about three or four orders of magnitude to every dimension of the IT world as the digital economy grows. And so it's a very important technology not just because it's interesting, but because it's necessary for us to make sure the infrastructure platforms of the IT world keep up with the business opportunities that are emerging as AI drives every business process and every industry to transform. So um, can you give us an example of a project that um, you know, indicates uh, some of this uh, management of the you know, complexities of the infrastructure? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'll give you a couple, couple of quick examples. Probably the, the one that's been around the longest is around security. Um, we all know that the security landscape is a pretty uh, complex world. The threats are increasing. We constantly hear about ransomware and denial of service attacks. And, mm-hmm. and as that world has expanded, what we realized is it was physically impossible for a human being, no matter how smart they were, to look at the trillions of security events that are coming mm-hmm. in. And, and so over the last several years, most of the security industry has already pivoted to, to essentially outsource, if you will, most of the the thinking and analytics tasks to understand and detect the patterns within the security world uh, as as they look at this proliferation of events coming in. And so modern security, whether it be fraud detection in a bank or uh, trying to determine if you're being hacked or advanced persistent threat is emerging, today is physically not possible to do unless there is a heavy AI layer involved in the system. Mm -hmm. That that one's already existing. Other ones that are a little more subtle because it's, it's happening everywhere are for instance, we ship, we're the largest provider of 
information storage technology in the world. So right. basic hard drives, SSDs, things of that nature. But those are very sophisticated systems. And one of the things we realized is as they evolved to make them faster, which is necessary because as data grows, you need more capacity, mm-hmm. you could either throw hardware at it um, or you could do something else. Now, one of the hardware problems we have is that things like Moore's Law are no longer advancing as fast as they did. Right. So we don't have the advantage of just ever-increasing hardware optimization. And so our path over the last several years has been saying, well, if we can't do it with brute force, maybe we can be smarter. And so we have uh, technologies today that we've embedded very advanced machine intelligence into our storage systems mm-hmm. to improve improve their, their cache performance and the ability for them to prefetch data. And they sound very technical, but the difference between a cache hit and a not cache hit is 80 times difference in the performance of the experience. And so if you can improve that with machine intelligence, what you effectively get are faster and better systems with more capacity without the hardware cost. So it allows us to keep up with the demand with another tool. So it's everywhere from the solve the security problem to actually a tool to make infrastructure technology faster and everything in between. Mm-hmm. So how do we develop the uh, infrastructure of AI um, in this this layer of AI you're talking about that is programmed by humans, which then, of course, um, you know, processes all this data? And I, I also know that a big issue here is around um, you know, the machine learning, which is really from decisions people make, right? So the algorithms learn from decisions and embed them into their into their um, uh, programming. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, so how do you sort of make sure that uh, that there's there's a level of uh, you know of focus in that it doesn't kind of uh, grow beyond its 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 role and become larger and less manageable, even as it tries to make other technologies manageable. Yeah, that, well, that's the, the, the long-term dilemma with machine intelligence and, and, and this, this idea of shifting cognitive tasks into machines. You know, Remember, for the last 200 years, we've divided the labor of the world mm-hmm. in, in, as follows. Thinking tasks are done by people. Mechanical tasks should be done by machines. Right. In the last five years, we've entered a new era where we're actually dividing up the thinking tasks. Mm-hmm. Now, the good news today is we're nowhere near artificial general intelligence where things kind of get a little more interesting. Um, but, but what we do have to determine is applying artificial intelligence to a problem, we need to bound that problem and understand what we're getting for because the unintended consequences of losing visibility into a particular area can actually be problematic. And so most of the AI projects in the world, the the, the ones that are actually meaningful and do something that as an outcome as opposed to just simply academic and and, and forward-looking, which are also very important, but the ones in production actually tend to be things that achieve a 5 or 10% improvement on a particular decision-making task. Mm-hmm. They, they, they aren't orders of magnitude better than a human being, but they are better enough that it's worth using that tool, but their task is very well defined. You know, do image recognition slightly better. Do caching slightly better. Now, those will continue to evolve, but because they're bounded to a domain, for instance, my AI logic in my storage systems to do caching, mm-hmm. uh, it's not going to become the Terminator. It's not mm-hmm. going to do something completely out of the box because the data it's exposed to and the per- and where it sits in the in the business process mm-hmm. is very well defined. Now, we're probably going to stay in that phase for quite some time. Now, there are even within that there are problems. For instance, what we've discovered is if you apply machine intelligence to make decisions by a machine in something like HR hiring, this is right. a commonly discussed one these days, 
you, if you lose the visibility and understanding of the data sets and you don't really understand how the logic is happening, the incorporation of bias into the data streams could result in bias into the output, which basically right. results in hiring the wrong people and creating the wrong demographic, and that's catastrophic. Right. So even inside Adele, we've had this discussion, and what we concluded was, yeah, that one we're going to tread very carefully on. But in the meantime, we're going to do a whole bunch of machine intelligence projects on things that are much better defined, that have a far lower risk profile, because to be candid, every decision-making process in our company, from supply chain to HR to development to how our products work, could be improved through the incorporation tactically and strategically to machine intelligence. So today, it's really, I hate to say it this way, go after the low-hanging fruit. Find the ones that you can quantify and control. Right. That'll keep you busy for a few years. And then as the industry evolves, to really develop better approaches to bias detection or mediation, to be able to create better security and bounding and policy models around AIs, and even, candidly, to create a set of ethics that the industry can agree on around the use of very advanced AI. Right, right. Those will work themselves out. And by the time mainstream industry needs to do that, I'm optimistically confident that we will have better tools and better environments. But in the meantime, we can be very busy improving our businesses and, and actually invoking a next wave of productivity into the economy. That's that's fascinating. I'm just going to take a quick, make a quick an, uh, announcement to our audience. In case you're tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Harbir Singh. I'm speaking with John Rose. President and Chief Technology Officer of Dell EMC. If you have a question, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So coming back to your, to your you know, wonderful examples, um, you know, I the HR thing is interesting, uh, but also one can think about autonomous drive, you know, that uh, is clearly, you know, that there are claims that Uber will be using and some of the, you know, ride-hailing companies will be using autonomous drive or trucks, trucking companies will use, you know, um, some version of autonomous drive. Uh, and yet one wonders if all the permutations of uh, of decision-making that people uh, deal with can be, you know, uh, can mirror uh, judgment uh, sufficiently, um, and I think you you mentioned that already. The point about you know going with this with the more well-behaved questions to to choose one terminology in mathematics, you know the well-behaved solutions, uh, well-behaved problems as opposed to complex problems. But sometimes even a well-behaved problem can become a complex problem. Absolutely, and autonomous vehicles. Just to give you some context about. Four years ago, we identified identified smart mobility, which includes autonomous vehicles, connected cars, all mm -hmm. of it, as not just an industry that's interesting, but a source of innovation because uh, for the entire ecosystem. And the reason for that is if you look at the data that is going to be necessary to build out a fleet of 40 million autonomous vehicles by any of the tier one suppliers over in the mid-2020s, these will be the first Zeta scale in terms of the amount of data infrastructures in the world that are private. Um, and, and mm, that's that, an interesting we'll point, too. Right. Yeah, and they, they would spawn all kinds of interesting consequences. For instance, we'll have to scale to Zeta scale there first. So that's really important to be there to learn how to do that. Mm -hmm. We'll have to learn how to make um, machine intelligence much more partitionable and distributed because a, a connected 
vehicle system is not a single monolithic system. Right. We will, we will absolutely have to do, uh, you know, uh, this, this idea of life safety versus non-life safety. We'll have to rethink what's inside of the life safety parameters and what can augment it. Right. Um, and then, you know, and then fundamentally, it's also an area where most of the sensing technology that will be used to feed these environments is mm-hmm. actually going to hit critical mass. For instance, an interesting correlation, uh, LIDARs and depth sensing cameras are necessary for many industries. Right. You go talk to the entertainment industry and ask them what's preventing you from virtual sets and virtual studios and all the things that you can use. They will tell you the cost of the sensor is too high. And then they will immediately say, but we're waiting for the automotive industry to basically scale ah, this. Very so it's the lead industry. Down. Exactly. And they say the automotive is going to trigger MEMS-based versions of these sensors, which will give you a huge cost advantage, and that will cause other industries to suddenly take advantage of it. So there's this, this is a very, very important industry, not just because it'll transform transportation, but it's the first at-scale environment where these very, very significantly advanced and distributed AI-driven ecosystems start to form. And I see. For us, it's, uh, it's worth paying attention to, even if you're not in automotive, because it's likely to be the source of a tremendous amount of innovation powering AI everywhere. So let me ask you this question then. Uh, I Speaking to people in the auto industry, it seems today, of course, <laughs> these projections are never linear, uh, but today people are saying that assisted drive is the way to go, that autonomous drive yes. is just too complex, including, of course, issues of insurance, right? Um, and uh, what is your thinking on that? In other words, it's back to your question about the the simpler, uh, the modularized versions right. of these questions, right? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely correct. Now, let's be really clear. The, the, the destination for the personal automobile is an autonomous vehicle. By the way, that's not the destination of the entire ecosystem. The destination mm-hmm. of the entire ecosystem is to rethink the concept of mobility, what is mobile and what is fixed. That's the 20-year vision. In the short term, though, a couple of things are interesting. The actual technology threat, the tools necessary to make something drive itself at, right. at a high level exist. Mm-hmm. And in fact, today we have what are called geofenced autonomous vehicle areas like mines and manufacturing environments that are fully autonomous because we've constrained them to a geofence space that we can limit the permutations. But inside of those mines, the trucks drive themselves. They do not need operators. They work in the right, system. Right. It is the Jetsons. It's the future, but it's only for that task. The inside the real world, though, when you get out of the geofenced world and you're dealing with the wild west of, of reality, well, you're absolutely correct. A lot of the work going on today is about developing the sensors and the tools and using them to better inform and to do particular, let's call it, uh, uh, functions as augmentation, but not full replacement of the human being. So think of it as the human is still the center. They're driving, but you're surrounding them with very specific tools. Assistive, lane lane assistive technologies, yeah. Exactly. And, and we're going to see a lot more of that. For instance, we'll see things like your heads-up display in your car. Right. We'll go from just showing you what the car knows to showing you what the, what the 20 cars in front of you around the corner know. Right. So you'll be able to see around corners and you'll be able to understand things. That will then maybe influence your suspension system a bit, but that's not driving the car. That's just making it more comfortable and more safe. And then, you know, obviously it's a long journey, more geofenced environments, taxi cabs, trucks, they're a little more geofenced. But the general Wild West car doing whatever it wants is the probably the last step. But all the technology that's being used will spawn smaller use cases that are, in fact, full examples of autonomous transportation. Uh, just because it's an entire uh, journey and a set of inflections, it's going to be phased. So let me ask you, kind of going to um, the, you know, to, to airplanes and the Boeing 737 
max, right? And uh, as you know, those crashes that took place um, were really because of the front sensor malfunctioning and the system overriding the pilot. And it took a lot for the pilots to... It, it would have taken time to deal with that, to override the system and and first diagnose and realize what's happening, that the sensor is not working. Um, and that's, of course, that's still being investigated and that's there's a lot more to it and that's not public and I don't know more on that. The more interesting question is the lack of trust that people have in in such technologies when they see a spectacular failure and they say, you know, we don't, we want pilots to fly planes, not uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, and yet, of course, for a long time, friends have been, planes are flying mostly on autopilot. So yeah. what's your thinking on the role of trust? Yeah, yeah. We, I actually had fascinating discussions with some other folks about this recently. And, and I, I, I've been developing technology that touches people for a very long time in a lot mm -hmm. of industries. And, and one of the things that we learned over the years was um, when you create a technology that interacts with people, that people consume or they, 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 they see, the visible technologies are different, but the things that actually they interact with, in the case of flying a plane, there's an interface, anything that has a human interface. If you bring an AI into that environment mm -hmm. to take over more of the tasks, that's not a bad thing. And it, and it obviously, you know, will have a behavior, but one of the inputs that most new technologies fail to consider mm -hmm. is the biofeedback of the human beings involved in it. Mm. Human beings are actually very good. We're, so, not, we're, we're lousy at communicating it, but we're very good at creating the signals of whether or not we are comfortable with the technology. Right. In the case of audio, you know, we're on a phone right now. When I was CTO at Norto, we did a lot of work in this space where we looked at conference bridges, and we concluded that in a conference bridge, if you could monitor the tone of people and their voice quality, mm -hmm. you could actually determine their stress level. Uh, and what you'd be able to determine, <laughs> and the correlation for us was the more people you added to a conference call, the right. higher the stress level got, unless you increased the bandwidth and made the audio stream more clear and did accent correction to calm people down so they could hear each other or use things like spatial audio. I see. That principle of biofeedback I'm advocating in, in the AI world, we have to consider. And it basically says your AI is a system that takes inputs and tries to form algorithms itself and make decisions. It, mm -hmm. it creates patterns and starts to think. One of the inputs it rarely is exposed to is the biofeedback of the people involved in it. Imagine the self-driving car. By the way, this is actually in automotive. The automotive companies are doing things like looking at whether or not you're drowsing, you're drowsy, or your, your right. eyes are closed, right. or you're not looking. That's a biofeedback that actually influences the AI. It will basically do different things if you're not engaged. That's a great example where other AIs need to look and understand how do I right, ask right, the right. human population whether they're comfortable, and if I determine they're getting uncomfortable, I change my behavior in some way. That kind of awareness is the key to creating trust. Very interesting. Yeah. It's there, it understands you, and it's empathetic to you and will adapt to keep you comfortable if our goal is to have the AI be an enabler for humans. So it's a bit like, you know, you have uh, in the field of design, you have uh, ergonomics, right, in terms of, you know, designing any kind of uh, a machine, uh, you know, how yes. to make it more comfortable. And what you're saying is in this digital interface, you need to, the analog would be biofeedback that, you know, humans feel comfortable right. with that technology. Exactly. And, and, yeah. and, and biofeedback is a great tool because AIs work best on telemetry streams. 
They mm-hmm. like lots of data streaming in real time, and then they correlate that. Well, if I can get your pulse, your heart rate, your perspiration rate, if I can get some things about you, which, by the way, we're all wearing sensors today that could provide that information, then I can actually, in a very real-time way, understand how to give you more information or take over more of the responsibility. And again, this is a concept that isn't tied to AI. We did it in voice processing. Airlines have figured right. this out. You know, put monitors up and tell people what's going on and everybody calms down. Don't right. tell them anything and people get stressed. You know, it's a That's interesting paradigm. We haven't really applied to AI because we're kind of on a mad rush right now to, to use it to improve the business process. But one of the consequences that will prevent AI from being successful is a lack of trust by human beings or a fear of the unknown, which we are very good at fearing unknown. And so we can solve that and, by yeah. making it empathetic. And thanks so much, uh, John, for joining the show on this wonderful note about trust with technology. Uh, and uh, so I want to thank you all so much for joining us. If you missed any of the last hour, feel free to check it out on demand on SiriusXM's app. And be sure to follow our channel on Twitter at BizRadio132. And you can also follow the Mac Institute at our own Twitter handle uh, at Mac Institute. The Mac Institute website also has a, as a set of podcasts that are recordings of the shows. Once again, a special thank, to you, thank you to all our guests today, Miranda Wang and also John Rose, President and Chief Technology Officer of De- Dell EMC. And I want to thank Dana, Dana Cash and Dion Simpkins. Until next time, I'm Harbir Singh, co-director of the Mac Institute, and this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Warden School on Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 